And welcome to another Player One interview. Nathan, we've done so many interviews this year. Uh, I just can't keep up with you guys. Yeah. How, you, how you doing, Nate? I'm pretty good. This is, yeah, we've done so many. It's crazy. But I think out of all of them, this is the one that I have the most excitement about because we're going to be diving into a period of gaming history that our generation, Nathan, may not know much about. But this man lived through the generation and developed games for that generation. I want to welcome to Player One, Mr. Howard Scott Warshaw. Howard, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's great to be here. It's true. I was there at the dawning of video games, but Nathan will be relieved to know that as crazy as this show might get, I am a licensed psychotherapist, so we're going to be able <laughs> to handle it. Oh, that's fantastic. Love it. But um, yeah, you you have gone through a lot in gaming history and not many people would know your name off by hand, but some of your projects are very well noted. But Nathan, let's start off with this. Let's get to know Howard. Yeah. So um, how did you get into game development? Because like now it's like seen as, you know, something a lot of people want to do, but back then it would have been kind of not very prominent, I guess. Not a bit of it. In fact, it didn't really exist when, you know, nowadays people grow up with video games and they think, oh, that'd be cool. I'd like to do that. Just like people grow up with movies and think they want to be in movies or, you know, broadcasting or things like that. When I was growing up, there were no video games. I was one of the people who originated video games. So when you're, when you start something, you don't have it till you make it right. So it was like, uh, there was no such thing as like, I'm going to be a video game designer or a video game maker. I got into it because I happened to be in computing uh, and I was getting bored with computing, working at Hewlett Packard, which is where I was. And I was a bit of an outlier. I was uh, kind of a zoo case at a place that was as normal as Hewlett Packard was. And I was looking for a place that was more interesting, more engaging. And the work I was doing at HP was kind of boring computer work. I had done a lot of my studies in real-time control systems, which was more exciting and dynamic programming as far as I was concerned. And uh, somebody told me about this place where they, they had heard that there's wild things that go on day by day around work. And I thought, oh, where's that? And they said it was Atari. And so I went and talked to them. Interestingly, I didn't go to Atari to do video games. I went to Atari because it was going to be a more wild place to be. And because they were doing the kind of programming I wanted to do, games were a plus. I love games. But I wasn't like a super video game fanatic at the time. I was aware of video games, but I just went there for the environment and for the technology. Uh, the games were a plus, but it ended up being uh, one of the greatest turns in my life. So beforehand, before you started working at Atari, the had you played a video game before, possibly at like arcades or something like that? Oh, absolutely. I had played a game here and there, but I wasn't like captivated by video games like some people were. I was very busy pursuing other things. And uh, I mean, I had, we had a Magnavox system at home. I mean, I had played, you know, all oh, the wow. Pong variants and things like that. And I had played some uh, Space Invaders and some Asteroids and Arcades and some driving games. I mean, the Elemental games, but uh, it wasn't, to me, it wasn't about games initially. 
It was just about the environment. When I got there, I made a dis discovery that would to change my life literally forever. And that was that for the first time, I really discovered what it was like to be in an environment that required me to be both technically astute and also have to be creative, have to be real creative. And, and one thing I always wanted to be was an entertainer. I always wanted to entertain people. And so this was a beautiful marriage of all the things I desired. And I never really envisioned a job where I could mix them all. And Atari showed me that. And that essentially ruined me because after Atari, it would be decades, literally decades before I could get another job somewhere that was as satisfying to all the things I want to do in a job as Atari was. So the first game you developed, I, I think, was uh, Yars Revenge. Uh, so Correct. can you tell us a, a bit about that? I can tell you everything about it. I'm very familiar with that game. Yars <laughs> Revenge was my personal favorite. I mean, to this day, it's still uh, that's the game that holds the sweetest spot in my heart. And it wasn't supposed to be Yars Revenge, right? In fact, it wasn't Yars Revenge until the very end. Originally, it was supposed to be a coin-op game, a conversion of Star Castle. And I had read the manual. I was certainly not an expert on the 2600 at the time, but I knew enough about the system and had figured enough out about it that when I thought about doing Star Castle, I realized maybe you could do some approximation of it, but it would definitely suck. It would definitely be a pretty lame game. And I could not bear the idea that my first game that I would do my initial contribution was going to be lame. That was just not okay. That wasn't going to happen. So, and I had begged my way into Atari because Atari initially rejected me after the interviews. I had uh, fight and claw and beg my way in to get a chance to be there. And my Dennis, my manager, gave me the opportunity to come in. I was sort of on probation at the time. And so he goes, okay, we'll give you a chance. Here you go. And they gave me a project. And the first thing I did was come back to him and say, you know, this project's no good. I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. And uh, I was very lucky in that he didn't just throw me out at that point. Uh, but of course, I made a presentation to him. I didn't just say, I don't want to do that game. I had done some storyboards and put some things together. I said, look, this is more what I think we could do that would work better on the machine. And he was game for it. And so he said, okay, give it a go. And, uh, and then I started working on a game. There still was no concept of Yars, but the game that became Yars Revenge was the game I started working on. And that was a very interesting development from start to finish. In fact, so you know, there's a book I just recently published called Once Upon Atari that details all the, uh, the events that went on my first day at Atari and what it was like to try and uh, program on the 2600 and the whole Yars Revenge project and everything about the ET project, if we ever happen to talk about that. And that's okay if we do. But I just wanted you to know that I have, I have actually finally cataloged all my Atari experiences. Well, that's awesome. I I can't, like, I myself haven't had the chance just because I've been working nonstop, but I am so excited to just find some time to go through, especially that first day, because that just sounds like a crazy first day. But once the project for um, four Yars was given the green light, what were the initial challenges in developing for the Atari 2600 system? Well, the 2600 is an incredibly limited system. Right. You have to remember that the, you know, nowadays it's not unusual for a program to be, you know, eight, 10, 20 gig. Right. 
and you could have gigabytes and gigabytes to, to do your game in. We, I had 4K. I had 4,000 bytes to do the program in entirely. And that was ROM. Okay, so that's read-only memory. That's not like RAM that you can play with. As far as RAM goes, for places to hold your game status, score values, positions on the screen, all of that, we got 128 bytes of RAM. That was all we had. So that's an incredibly limited programming environment, which is what made it cool. It was also very primitive hardware. So there was really only two sprites, two player sprites you could use. Also, you have to program the electron gun as it sweeps across the screen, because this was done on phosphor, you know, CRT displays. This wasn't done on plasma or flat screen displays. So we're actually programming the electron gun as it's sweeping across the screen, changing registers and changing the content of what's going on. So you can have something on one side of the screen and maybe update it. So by the time you get to the other side of the screen, it's a fresh graphic and you're reusing it. Plus you had to keep repositioning and reusing things down the screen. There's no bitmap, right? For people who know what a bitmap is in terms of programming, get your head around this. The 2600 does not have a bitmap. So that means that, you know, all the time you have to run your program, well, if you take the time that's going on in the game, 75% of that time is spent just managing while you're on screen. So you only have 25% of the time to run your program. It's a slower program because this is older technology. There's no bitmap. You have to do everything live. And you're trying to think of all these clever tricks to reutilize and, and you know, get the most out of the machine. And so that was a really challenging environment to work in, but it was really fun. It was really exciting. And it made you create tricks and, and little programming, you know, hacks that were incredibly clever and, and horribly dangerous programming practices. But as a, as a true hacker, it was a lot of fun. It was much more fun than just writing a C++ structured program in a, in a prepped environment. I was just going to say, I can imagine that, um, video game developers now don't have to go through as much trouble to <laughs> run their games, but true. I was just about to add um, with, with yours, what was the initial reception and reaction from those at Atari for your work? Well, what was interesting was I had this whole concept and I had some really, I mean, I put some graphics up on the screen early on that no one had ever seen. I just started doing unusual things because for some reason, I don't know if it's even what I like to do, but for some reason, I just think about stuff in odd and different ways. That's just what I do. And so when I looked at the 2600, I started to see things that other people hadn't necessarily seen yet. And so I started to put things up on the screen and people were like, oh, that's cool. Oh, that, that's really neat looking. And it was, and people liked it. I started animating things right away. Some of the first things I put on the screen was like the fly animation and the glittering uh, zone in the center of the screen. And it looked cool. And people thought that's really great. And then when it got to actually playing the game, it wasn't working well at all. It was really pretty poor. And I was really uh, struck. I was really, uh, I, it was a very depressing time, right? Because I, I had I'd gotten the chance to either sink or swim. And I thought I was doing well. And then I felt like I was sinking. But then, you know, as happens in creative projects, I banged on it a few times. I took some input from a number of people and came around. I, I, I had to change the controller scheme. I was hanging on to the controller scheme from the previous game for a variety of reasonable reasons, but they weren't 
it didn't work. And so I threw that out and forced me to redesign some of the aspects of the game. And then suddenly the game came alive and it was super playable. And now people were liking it. In fact, people were liking it so much that the people over in CoinOp were talking about possibly doing a CoinOp of a VCS game, which never happened, right? We, 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 the VCS would do versions of CoinOp games. There was never a game that started on the VCS and went to a CoinOp. And there was talk of that. People just really dug the game. And that's when it came time to start naming the game. So uh, that's when I came up with Yars Revenge. There's a whole story about naming the game and how that came about. And uh, I could share that with you if you like. You mentioned control schemes. Now, with the Atari 2600, it has a very iconic controller. But I would imagine for developing games, it was an extremely difficult process because you're trying to do so much with so little. Right. You've got one button and you've got one stick that only really has four switches on it. So it can give you a total of eight directions. And that's it. That's all you got. And that was one of the problems I had with the control scheme is because there was a there was an action function to activate the main weapon. And that was going to be back on the joystick because the stick was like right, left, rotate, forward to move. And then you'd pull back to get this weapon. And But that right, left, rotate was a horrible motion scheme. And it felt very uncomfortable. So I wanted to switch to a direct motion scheme. You just move the stick wherever you want to go. The problem with that is now how do I activate the main weapon? Because if you can't activate that, it's really hard to win the game. <laughs> so I had to come up with another way. But I So I worked that into a play sequence in the game where you have to touch or go very near the, the, the monster, the co-tile in the game, in order to, to activate your weapon which was a great dynamic because that way you have to put yourself in danger to be able to attack. And that's always a good dynamic in a game. And now I had free motion. I had a way of activating the Zorlon cannon, which is the main weapon. And now I had this thing where things are flying all over the screen. There's lots of color, lots of flashing going on. As long as you're not epileptic, it's a great game to play. And it's <laughs> just, uh, and then it was, and so it was very popular and we were going to get ready to release it. And that's a very anxious time and a very exciting time when you're going to release your game. But when they went to release it, somebody came up in, internally and said, wait, I think there's some concerns about the playability of the game. And so they wanted to, they held it up and they put it into a test. And they did that again and again. And each time it would go through the test, it would do great in the tests. It would do really well in the tests. I think, okay, here we go. We're going to release it. And then, nope, there's another complaint. For some reason, there was something going on where someone was trying to hold the game up and keep it from going out. And so ultimately, they commissioned a play test, which is the biggest test they can possibly do, where they get over 100 people to come in and play the game, and they play it against another game. There's a So they compare the games. And so the game that they pick to play against is like, a very important part of that test. And I was sweating bullets waiting to hear what they were going to test against. And the game they decided to test it against was Missile Command, which was the number one game on the system at the time. I thought, oh no, they're trying to kill my game. And it was horrible. And I went to the play test and I sat through every, it was took a full weekend. And I sat through every bit of it. And when the smoke cleared at the end, Yars Revenge actually beat Missile Command in that playtest, became the highest testing game ever. And so finally they released the game and I got to experience what it's like to have a product go out, to actually have my game appear on TV 
uh, in television commercials, to go into a store and see people playing it. And I got to experience the ultimate high at Atari. The ultimate high at Atari is when you go into a store and you see kids fighting over a controller for the chance to play your game. Right. That's that's the best thing you can see <laughs> at Atari. And I got to experience that. Finally, it was an amazing, amazing moment in my life. Did you ever find out who was that trying to kill the game? Uh, I had some suspicions about who it was, and uh, I don't think it was a malicious thing. I think they actually had legitimate complaints, but I think they were exaggerated. And, you know, the thing is, at Atari was a place where there was a tremendous amount of talent. There was a tremendous amount of money at stake. There was a tremendous amount of prestige. And Atari was the place that took video games from a small hobby thing that some people have to the, the thing that's everywhere. You know, the people weren't calling them video games anymore. They were just calling them Atari. It was the Kleenex of games, right? And so when you have an environment like that, there's a lot of egos that are going to show up and come into play. There's a lot of battles for credit. In fact, one of the things that I really go into in the book at great length is some of the battles that went on between engineering and marketing, which were in a lot of cases, ego battles over you know, who's gonna do what and how, who controls what the game is that goes out. And you know, when you have egos uh, flying around in that kind of environment, there's gonna be conflicts, and some things suddenly become problems. Ordinarily, maybe they shouldn't be problems. And, uh, and sometimes things that should be problems don't turn out to be problems. They get overlooked because nobody wants a problem. And it's, uh, the, the politics of the place was very interesting and very challenging. And uh, there's just so many great stories about you know, the kinds of conflicts that went on there. But it was also about making fun. It was about creating entertainment, but mostly it was about launching a new medium, right? If you think about it, interactive entertainment, this was the birth of interactive entertainment, which means nobody knew what it was. And that's why your story is just incredibly interesting because you were at the birth of it. You know, as you mentioned earlier, you owned a Magnavox Odyssey, which was the very, I think one of the very first home consoles. Granted, it was for all intents and purposes, a Pong machine, but it was still very, it was so popular for that time. And you also mentioned at that time, Atari was the Kleenex of video games. It was Absolutely. that first mainstream system. And with that, because the we'll get into it, I think we're, we're at that point, the big elephant in the room, movie license games started becoming popular. You yourself had worked on a couple of them. How, how were you assigned to those projects? Was it something that you put your hand up and said, yeah, I want to give this a shot. Let's do it. Or was it something that, hey, how, how it, we want you to work on this? What a great question. Yeah. In fact, I, with Raiders of the Lost Ark, I did the first ever movie conversion to a game. And the way that came about was that I had finished Yar's Revenge, although the testing was just starting on it, right? But I was, I was free. And so it was time to look at a next game for me and Raiders, the license for Raiders came up. So- uh, I was one of the people they were considering to do it. But the thing was, this was going to be working with Steven Spielberg. And so whoever was going to do Raiders had to be personally approved by Steven Spielberg. So I got to go to Steven Spielberg and have an interview with him. 
Oh, wow. And so, and that was, that was one of the most amazing days of my life. That's another one that's completely covered in the book. Oh, but did I tell you there was that book once upon a time, <laughs> how I made history by killing an industry. I just oh, don't want to forget it. to mention that. So, love it. But there was this day where I was uh, set to go and meet Spielberg. So I got up in the morning, went to the airport, flew to Los Angeles, went to Warner Studios, get to Spielberg's office at 930. I had to take an airplane to get there for a morning meeting. I show up. I'm there five minutes early. I walk in and there's a receptionist there and they say to me, Oh, by the way, your meeting has been moved to 3.30 this afternoon. They bumped my meeting by six hours. I said, I flew to get here. I said, what do you mean you moved it for six hours? And at first I thought, this is horrible. But then, you know, I'm a make lemonade kind of guy, right, when you get lemons. And so I so I thought about it. I said, well, I'm going to have to change my flight. Can, can you change my flight for me? And they said, yeah. And I thought, well, that's cool. And then I realized, you know, I'm a huge movie buff, movie and TV I was all over that stuff all the time. And here I am at Warner Brothers Studios. And I thought, so I said, hey, I know I got six hours. Uh, do you mind if I just sort of walk around the lot? And, and they said, sure, you know, do whatever you want. Just be back here at 3.30. So I got to spend a day at a movie studio unescorted. And I went everywhere. I went all <laughs> over the place. I stole things off of movie sets that I liked. And it was just I just had an amazing day all over the Warner Brothers lot. And then at the end of it, I got to go hang out with Steven Spielberg. And so we had a whole interview and exchange. And I brought Yars Revenge and I showed him Yars. And he really liked Yars. He thought that was cool. And then at one point during the interview, I said to him, you know, Stephen, because E.T. had not even come out yet. E Nobody knew about E.T. yet. But Close Encounters of the Third Kind was out. And that was doing great all over the place. And I said to him, I said, you know, Stephen, I have this theory about how you're actually an alien. I said, would you like to hear it? And he goes, yeah, sure. And so I laid it out for him because I do have this whole theory about it, about how the aliens would send an advanced team to culturalize the planet. And I figured he was part of the production arm. And I said, and by the way, your marketing people, they're doing a great job. They're just doing a great job. <laughs> and so... And I think he really, I think that got me the job. I think he just really liked all that. So when I got back to California, the word came up. I mean, got back to San Jose and the word came out that, you know, Spielberg had chosen me to do the game. So I started working on Raiders. Yeah. Um, one thing I find interesting, we were talking about um, the uh, controllers earlier. You actually programmed it. So in Raiders, you actually had to use two controllers. I did. I did. I did some breakthrough stuff. Sometimes it was really breakthrough and sometimes it was breakdown, you know, but I just wouldn't do stuff normally. But I did that to enhance the game because since the control schemes were controllers were so limited, like how do you move and control an inventory at the same time? And what if you need your inventory to be part of the action, which could make the game bigger, but you can't do all that with one controller. So what I did was I made the necessity for two controllers and in fact, there are some points in the game where you need to manipulate both controllers simultaneously to be effective in the game. I just made it part of the gameplay. Some people found that intriguing and some people found that frustrating, but there's a, that, that theme runs through everything I do. Most people think it's kind of cool, but there's always people who think it's the worst thing that ever happened, you know, and who would have guessed that might've happened with E.T.? <laughs> oh. 
Well, with with Raiders, with the two controllers, definitely it your it was one of I think one of the very few Atari games, especially back then, you could actually beat the game because a lot of it was high score based. So you were making games with a beginning and an ending here. Was there any sort of struggles in trying to do a game like that in Atari? You mean people saying don't do it? Or just you mean that kind of struggle or any just concerns? Um, not really, because the game Adventure was the was already out, and that was the first game that really did that. And I decided an adventure oh, okay. was an appropriate way to do a movie game. I felt that you should be able to win to achieve, you know, your goal ultimately in the game. So I felt an adventure format was good. And you know, I, I never felt there's anything wrong with that kind of format. The issue because you know, people watch movies over and over again when they really like them. You know, they we play games over and over again if we really enjoy Absolutely. them. And so, yeah, you can either play a game to get the highest score you ever have, or if it's a game that ends, you can play it to get it faster than it's ever been done, play it more completely than it ever was. Because I had a bunch of Easter eggs in there, extraneous things to get as well, in addition to the basic through line of the gameplay. So to really max out the game, you still had to hunt down things, find extra stuff. That was part of the design. So I, I didn't really get much blowback from it. What I did get blowback for, because you're right, there was some controversy there, is because I didn't want to reveal the secrets of the game. I wanted people to have to uh, really explore it and get there. And there were some tricky secrets in this game. But this is pre-internet. You have to remember that this was all happening before the internet existed. Oh, yeah which means there's no, uh, there's no cheat codes. There's no go online and get the playthrough and see how that goes. And so there wasn't a way to get it out. So marketing was saying, we need to reveal the secrets in the manual just with, with a spoiler alert. And just tell people, don't look here if you don't want to, but we need to let them know. And I was saying, no, that ruins the whole idea of an adventure game. You shouldn't do that. And uh, they won that battle and they should have, right? I was on the wrong side of that one, in my opinion. And so, you know, the game went out and in the manual, there were hints and ways to help you get through the game, which I think was necessary and made it much better for people uh, playing it. Not that anybody reads the manual anyway, but, you know, <laughs> at least they could know it was there. Especially these days where every game has a tutorial. Yeah, but yeah Nathan, go ahead. What were you about to ask there? I, I was going to say about the Easter eggs. I I, I read that like in most of your games, you have your initials in them. All of my games. I was like the king of Easter eggs. I was all about the Easter eggs. <laughs> so in Yar's Revenge, uh, there's one uh, famous Easter egg, and that's my initials forwards and backwards. It goes, you, you can find an HSWWSH. Now, the reason I put it in that way is because it tells you a secret about the game, which is the naming convention for Yar's Revenge, because Yar is actually Ray spelled backwards, and Ray Kazar was the CEO of the company, and that was oh, wow. a thing that I did in the naming of the game. It's And the, the wow. solar system that, that Yar's Revenge takes place in is called the Razak solar system. And, you know, Razak is Kazar spelled backwards. So I had hidden the name of the CEO in the game. And if you get the HSWWSH, that's supposed to tell you to start spelling things backwards and you'll find Ray Kazar and you'll be able to get that aspect of it. And that was the thing that went on with my first game. By the time I got that to Raiders. That just sounds like it's so much fun. 
Oh, I, I had a lot of fun with signatures and with Easter eggs. To me, that was that was what we called metagaming, right? There's gaming, which is just playing the game. Then there's metagaming, which is stuff around the game. It's the stuff you do that's not just playing the game, but the lore around the game or other things, strenuous things you can look for in the game. And so in, in Raiders, I have, uh, there's two things you can find. Because every one of my games that I've signed you can find my initials with a number, and that number is the number of the game that I did. So Raiders has an HSW2, ET has an HSW3. And then you also will find the main character of every one of my previous games. So there's a place in Raiders where you can be digging up some dirt, and then a yar will fly out of the pit. And it'll just fly off the screen. So you can find that in Raiders. In E.T., you can have a yard that flies out of the pit. And you'll also have Indiana Jones show up at some point. So oh, wow, that's what I did. And there's a lot of signatures in E.T. I was just going to say, I think it goes without saying HSW2. We got HSW3 now. Um, what was the, I guess, was it the same sort of process with being assigned to the E.T. project as it was to Raiders or was it um, something, was it a bit different? Oh, not at all. Okay. No, in fact, so that's, okay. you know, one of the main through lines in this book, Once Upon Atari by Howard Scott. <laughs> <Winter>. <laughs> Love it. Is, uh, is the whole ET project. In fact, the opening of this book is the moment I got the assignment of what it was like, because, you know, Yars Revenge took seven months for me to program and get settled and get all set. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark took 10 months, 10 to 11 months for me to program and get that all set. When it was time to do the ET game, because of the way the negotiations had gone, Atari only left five weeks to do the game. So the ET video game had to be done in five weeks. So when it came time to do it, what happened was I didn't know this, was that the, Ray Kazar, the head of the company, had called my boss's boss, my grand boss, and said to him, we need an ET game in five weeks. Now, I had just finished doing Raiders, which was an extraordinary task in and of itself. It was a lot of work over a long time, and I was pretty burnt. And so they said, uh, they said to, they called my grand boss and said, we need ET, and we need it for September 1st, and this is like late July. And he just said to them, can't do it. You can't do a game in five weeks. Nobody's ever done it. You can't do that. And so Ray Kazar, the CEO of Atari, having heard that from his head of engineering, still called me directly. He just called me in my office. I'm sitting in my office, got a call from Ray Kazar. I said, okay, here we go. And he called, he goes, Howard, he goes, can you do ET in five weeks? Can you do it for September 1st? And I said to him, absolutely, I can. I absolutely can do that. I said, <laughs> provided we reach the right agreement. And he said, okay. He said, okay. This was a Tuesday afternoon, right? He said, Thursday morning, there's going to be a Learjet at San Jose airport at 8 a.m. Be on it because you are going to come down to LA to present the design for the ET video game to Steven Spielberg. Because Steven oh Spielberg had apparently God. asked for me to do the ET game because he liked Raiders and he liked what I did with Yars. So it's like, I was the guy and, and that's it. And the rest is history that is very well documented in a book called once upon a <laughs> <laughs> And so 
It's uh, and that's the story. I mean, this was it was the fastest video game in history by a long shot. You know, it wasn't even close. And, you know, some people say, well, it was a stupid idea to do it. And maybe it was. But I believed I could do it. And I did do it. I didn't deliver a perfect game, but I delivered a completed, largely debugged video game that is playable and done and still has fans to this day in five weeks. And that was a really rough time. I was going to say, the general, excuse me, the general consumer would not know that this is a game that was done in five weeks, done strictly by yourself. And in that time, it would have had to have taken such a huge toll on you both physically and mentally. Were there times where you just had had to just nearly throw your hands up and say, I can't handle this anymore? Or was it just you were, you were so, I guess, goal-driven to just, let's just get this done. Let's just get it out there and let's focus on anything else later. Spot on. You got it spot on. It was basically, there was no time for me to have a breakdown. You know, it was just, there wasn't room in the schedule for me to have problems. So I just, I was so just full on focused on just getting this done because also this satisfied a need for me. I needed a mountain to climb. I wanted like a super challenge. It was just at at that place in my life. And the idea of doing something that most people considered impossible was exactly what I wanted to do. And it was super important to me to make it happen. So I was all about that. So here it is. I've got a video game to do. I have 36 hours to design it and then present the design to Steven Spielberg. But if you think about it, if you only have five weeks to do a game, you can't really take much more time to design it anyway. But what I did was I figured out that, you know, games take like six to eight months to do typically. And if you're going to try and do a six to eight month game in five weeks, you're going to fail. That just can't work. So what I realized what I need to do is design a game, not that's a great game, but a game that can be done in five weeks. That's the design challenge. And that's what I did. And there's a great scene in the book about when I'm presenting the design to Spielberg and he looks it over and he's like, well, couldn't you do something more like Pac-Man? (laughs) And I had a huge thing in my head because he was so amazed when I showed him Raiders of the Lost Ark, he was blown away. Right. And he looked, I showed him a videotape of a playthrough of Raiders and he looked at it at the end. He looked up at me after watching that. He goes, you know, Howard, he goes, it's just like a movie. And I thought, oh my God. You know, I'm a, I, I, he was my idol and I was such a big movie fan. And the idea that I produced a game and that Steven Spielberg watches a playthrough of the game and thinks it's just like a movie. I was just on, on I was over the moon, right? With that. So then like a couple of months later, here we are. And I'm sh- showing him a design for ET he looks up. He goes, well, can't you do something more like uh, Pac-Man? And I was, I was just stunned. I thought, really, one of the most innovative directors wants me to do a knockoff you know, for his game. And, I, and it was galling. But then I thought, well, you know, Steven Spielberg, I'm not going to complain. But what I realized was I can't do a Pac-Man-like game. That takes too long because I know how long it takes to do a game like that. So I had basically I, had, I created a game that would work that I could do in five weeks. And so I had to basically sell that to him. So I just told him, you know, Steven... This is uh, E.T. is a very innovative and exciting and fresh movie. 
And I said, we can't do a knockoff. It needs a fresh game approach because the game that I had designed was fairly unique. It was like nobody had ever done something like that before. It was the first game ever that had a 3D world, right? Because it's actually played on a cube that works geometrically. And uh, it was also the first game that I think ever had location-dependent power-ups, right? There were a number of innovative concepts still in it, but most of those were expediencies, right? These were just ways that I had figured out to, to be able to do things more quickly in development and get them through. And if he would have said, no, no, we need to do something else, I would have had to say to him, look, I can't do that in this time. This is all I can do in this time. But I didn't want to come across desperate initially. So, But I did sell him on the idea of something fresh and exciting, and he went for it. And that was cool. And then I just started working away. Like, what was your feeling like seeing the reception of E.T. kind of, I guess? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question because, you know, E.T. is known, and I am not uh, ashamed of this or have difficulty talking about it. So don't worry about that. I mean, ET is known as the Thank worst you. game of all time. Right. And I'm comfortable with that to tell you the truth. I don't believe for a second that it's actually the worst game of all time. I think there are there far are, worse games. Are, oh, that's without question. They are far worse. <laughs> right. But the truth is I prefer <laughs> it when people do identify ET as the worst game of all time, because I also did Yars revenge which people frequently cite as one of the best games of all time. So as long as E.T. is the worst game of all time, I have the greatest range of any game designer in history. And I'm very proud of that. So, you know, I, but I, E.T. has to be the worst for me to achieve that. One, one thing that generally, when I thought about this, and especially back in, if I travel back to 1982, E.T. itself at that time was a very popular movie and i think sometimes people do forget that and the game itself was hyped up a lot with the movie a lot um how i i would say a part of the reason why people look at it in that light it's the worst game ever it's because it was a largely very i'd say a very hyped game that people were anticipating it was a super hyped game and 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 back to nate's question for a second is the idea of how did I feel about the reception? Well, you have to understand also that, you know, nowadays you do a game, the game drops, you get immediate feedback all over the globe and you can drop point releases. You can respond to that feedback. You can make updates and it's an interactive process and it's an immediate feedback process. This was not the case back then. The reason the game had to be done by September 1st was because it had to go to manufacturing where they had to print literally millions of copies of it, box them, package them, ship them out to stores where they can be available to people because there's no online access because that didn't exist. And to have all of that in place and set for by Thanksgiving to make the Christmas market, you had to have it available for manufacturing by September 1st. So that's why the short schedule. Okay. And so, but it also means that I'm not going to get any public feedback on the game for months and months and months after it's done. So when I first finished the game, first of all, there was much cheering. You know, a grand time was had by all because I had done it. I was a hero because I had come through and delivered a game in five weeks that got through quality assurance and was able to be shipped. So it was like huge. And then in December, because of all that hype, you know, there was a point in early December, where I had two of like the top seven games in the country. I had Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. were both like high atop the sales charts. 
So that was pretty good. None of that feels like a failure at that point, right? It all feels good. It wasn't until through Christmas and then into the next year when we started to get the feedback and people opened it up for Christmas, started to play it and hated it. That's when it finally started to bubble back. And it wasn't into until into January and early February that it was really clear what a mess this was, right? So for a long time, it felt great. And then it was kind of ugly, but I was on to next projects already. And I'm not that focused on what's going on with the games later when I'm doing a next game. And there was no internet then either. So it wasn't like there was this public outcry and outrage and everybody trashing me online because of it. The uh, We Hate ET and all the top 10 lists didn't really start till into the 90s. And this is the early 80s. And then came the video game Crash, which is another topic that is very clearly outlined and explained in my book, Once Upon Atari. Oh, wait a minute. I think it's this one. So <laughs> the uh, oh, all of these things don't amazing. really gel and come together until later on. And when in the video game Crash, people kind of forgot about video games, so there was less focus on. But by the mid-90s, you know, I was reading articles where people go, well, E.T. was single-handedly responsible for destroying the video game industry. And that's why I have the subtitle for my book, How I Made History by Killing an Industry, because I reputedly was the, the source of the real video game crash in the early 80s. Although that's just really, that's the uh, folk wisdom. And I clarify that a great deal in the book. From what I read briefly um, on on the internet, so this might be not be true, but like uh, there were kind of a few main factors to the video game crash, like... Um, the overabundance of like bad games, the kind of computer price war and stuff like that. So I don't think your game was like solely responsible. Well, I agree with you completely. I don't think it is. I just think it's a fun moniker to bear. But uh, the truth is (laughs) there were lots of contributing factors. Uh, A couple of keys to which is you have to remember this was the first product lifecycle of a successful video game console. And nobody knew what that was like before. And whenever you do something for the first time, you make the mistakes that people make the first time that subsequent producers learn from and benefit from. Uh, It was also the culture at Atari. There was an amazing shift in the culture of Atari from the early Nolan Bushnell creative culture to the Warner Brothers overseeing uh, monetary focused marketing culture that sort of squeezed out the creativity. And that also contributed to the glut of crappy games and things like that that went on that did ultimately cause the downfall. But the uh, I go deeply into what the real sources were, both in terms of actual scenes at Atari that were describing it. Like Atari made some decisions that caused things like Activision to get launched and Imagic to get launched. Right. Those if, if they had made slightly different decisions in some areas, those, comp- those those competing companies would never have existed. People wouldn't have found out what kind of profit margins exist in video games. You wouldn't have seen this rush from all over the place of people trying to just throw any kind of garbage in. And, you know, they forgot to protect the system. Now, when people make consoles, they fix it so you can't release a game on it unless you have the permission of the manufacturer. They didn't do that because no one had ever done this before. There's, uh, it, it's a very complex thing, you know, what where it came from. People like to simplify it by saying things like ET, you know, crashed the industry because it's a simple explanation. People like that. So what you could say is that ET became the face of the video game crash, and I became the butt behind the face. 
Um, one thing I want to ask is, um, so you said about like over corporatization, I guess, of Atari. I we're kind of seeing that still even today with video game companies, where a lot of them are more for profit and less for um, the, you know, the creativeness of kind of making video games. So, what do you kind of think of that? Well, I think it's absolutely true. And what one one of the things that a lot of people have told me. Uh, after reading the book, is that people who are in game manufacture and game creation now say that the things that I described—the basic uh, political battles and the kind of conflicts that you find inter interdepartmental conflicts that went on at Atari—still go on to this day in game companies. They've never really resolved it because how do you resolve this thing? One of the things I talk about in the book is that in business, particularly in in creative business. There's two kinds of people essentially that you're dealing with, right? There's people who make things and there's people who make money from people who make, right? And that's the two kinds of people that you have. And they have very different goals. And it's not that one is better than the other or superior to the other because they're not. You have great people and, and poor people in both categories, okay? And you have to remember that in any category, the average person is average, right? That's why they call it average. But you have extraordinary people. You have talented people in both departments. Now, the creative people want to make the best thing they can. They want to take as long as they can because they know every extra moment they put into it is going to make it better. And they want to release the best thing they can because they want to put something out in the world that they're proud of that represents them. Then you have the people who want to make money from the people who make. Now, what they want is they want to get something out and start selling it because you have a limited sales window for any product. And if you don't sell it now, you can never sell it now again. Right. Every week you don't sell a product is a week you never recover the sales from. And that's where they're thinking. So they want to get something out as fast as possible for legitimate reasons, just like the uh, people who make them want to delay it as much as possible for legitimate reasons. So you have this inherent conflict that's going on all the time. Right is that the marketing people are saying, we need to get this out. We've already advertised. We've got everything set up. The market's primed. It's not going to last forever. We need to hit. We need to strike while the iron's hot. And the people in engineering are going, this is a crappy iron. I want a better iron before you put it out there. Give me a little more time and you'll get more sales. And they'll say, we don't need more sales. It's not really going to get more sales, but we're losing sales by not having it available now. They're both right, right? There isn't really a right or wrong, but this conflict plays out. Remember when I said how the egos are all showing up in this stuff? Well, everybody's got their ego behind their argument, which is what raises the tension in the conflict. And away you go. And that is still happening to this day in creative production. And after everything that went through, after all the, both the marketing struggles and the creative struggles through everything, after ET launched, do you... Did you become a bigger fan of video games? Oh, I was a big fan of video games by the time Yara's Revenge launched. <laughs> so, I mean, did I become a bigger fan after the ET, or did I re recede from it in any way? Um, it didn't sour me on yeah, video yeah. games. Yeah, yeah. Was there any sort of regression? Okay, cool. And oh, no, did you no. I've always enjoyed video, video games. games. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To this day, oh, I'm awesome. a Candy Crush fool. Although I must admit that Cropsies are kind of gaining on me recently. Their latest iteration is uh, actually pretty compelling. I haven't played, I don't play a lot of console gaming recently. Okay, but I'm thinking I'm actually going to probably get a PS5 and start getting back into it. But uh, handheld gaming on the phone, you know, you know what they say is, you know, you know, 
you know, play a game and you can waste a few minutes, make a game and you can waste a lifetime. Yeah. Um, do you think that something like the video game crash could happen like today? No, but thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'll tell you what I mean is that, you know, the less it, one of the reasons the crash occurred, because one, there was a glut of garbage out there, but two, there was no alternate system to move to. They didn't provide an opportunity. Nowadays, when they release the PS5, the PS6 is already in development. The next Xbox system is well in development by the time you see the most recent one, because now they know about how long a console is good for. They know how long it takes to design it, and they know they have to start right away and move forward so that when the market starts falling off for the last console, they're ready to step in with a new one. Atari didn't know that. Atari looked at it as, why would we develop a new game machine to undercut ourselves who are making so much money on this first console? Let's let that work first and not try to get in our own way. That was the thinking that led to this problem that, oh, when things do start to fall off, there's no place to go. There's no next step. At Atari, they scrambled, did release the 5200, but that was really just a repackaged version of the 400-800 computer, which had already been out for years. So it wasn't new technology. It was just a little better than the VCS. But there was no real next generation system at the time the VCS fell off. And that's where the crash happened. Now, nobody lets that happen. And that's why I believe it can't go that way. Also, video gaming isn't just a fad or a thing to do. By now, people know it's a well-established thing. It's just like saying, well, do you think we'll ever stop making movies? Probably not, right? It's, a, it's an art form. It's an entertainment form that's established. It's there. And video games has joined that pantheon, but video games is at the forefront of interactive entertainment, which is, you know, now things like virtual reality, augmented reality, things like that, they're all going to stand on the shoulders of video games. When you, I, I hope that answers slowly, your question. I think that answers everything just amazingly. You, we, we asked you what time it was. You told us how to build a watch and we love it. <laughs> But um, as we so as we sort of start to wind down, when you when you look back on your career as a whole, do you have any level of regrets? Any sort of I could have done this better, or is are you just you live through it and it's a part of life that you'll never forget, but a part that you'll never regret either. Um, that's a really good point. Uh, what I would say is. I have lots of things I wish I'd done instead, but I have no regrets, right? Those are both true. I have no regrets. It was the greatest ride of my life until I started becoming a psychotherapist. This was a revelation to me. And uh, I actually enjoy the work that I do now more than I enjoyed the work that I did at Atari. And Atari was the most amazing thing in my life because of all the joy and satisfaction it brought me. But uh, I have to say that in some ways, gaming has come full circle and I've come full circle. Because you look at gaming, it started with consoles and consoles got bigger. It was one person games, right? One person created a game on the console. And that was beautiful. There was a beauty to having just one person in control of the whole project. And that was, I loved that. I loved that about it. So you have that. 
and then consoles grew and grew, and then there were teams, and there were large teams, and there were huge teams, and there were unbelievably big teams. And it got way past the point where any individual could do it. And consoles have continued to grow and get bigger and more outrageous. But it also circled around with the advent of handheld gaming and phone apps and things like that. And now we live in a world where we have both, uh, both the console games, which are the huge, like the luxury liners, and you still have the speedboats, which are the apps. And, and it's now it's still once again the case where a single individual or a small team can actually deliver a game and make an app and make it available to people and they can enjoy it. And if it hits, if it's right, it goes and it's fabulous and that's exciting. And that's what I mean, coming full circle. We're back to the possibility of one person with a breakthrough idea actually doing. It. And similarly, I have come full circle in my life. I began entertaining nerds, right? By making video games, I entertain nerds. And now as a psychotherapist, I work with a lot of people in gaming, whereas I used to entertain nerds. Now I actually make their lives better. And that is incredibly rewarding for me. And I'm so proud. And in fact, the, uh, I don't have many regrets. I do have a lot of exciting perspectives on it. And I don't know if I mentioned it before, but there's actually this book, <laughs> Once Upon Atari, and uh, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. It's available at online book outlets and bookstores can order it for you. And uh, I just hope you'll check it out. If you've enjoyed this interview, you will definitely enjoy the book. Bravo to you, Howard. You are an amazing individual with such an incredible journey and such an interesting journey that my generation, myself and Nathan and the entire crew, this has been such a, this was a roller coaster of, a, of, a, of an interview to be because you gave us everything and it was so cool thank you so much for your time oh well thank you thanks for having me on Nate and connor i mean i really appreciate your time it was a really fun interview and you know have me back sometime i'll be happy to come on oh i am so excited if we get that possibility but as well i'm excited for everyone else to check it out it'll be dropping on Spotify, the Apple Podcast, the Google Podcast, the Omnis, because you know what? At Player One, we like to do cheap plugs ourselves. Go check us out on the Instas and the Twitters at Player One Sin. Howard, once again, thank you so much for today's oh, interview. If I, could, if I could throw one more thing in. First of oh. all, let me know when it drops. I'll be happy to promote it. But also, onceuponatari.com. Anybody who wants to go oh, to onceuponatari.com, yeah. if I can say that, and you go can find it. resources and autograph things and it's all there. But thank wow. you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Howard. We'll be catching you guys on Monday night, as always, 8 till 11 p.m. on Player One.